0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show comes in three parts. First, ISIS and the terrorist attack on Paris. Then, what's happening in Congress? And finally, part two of our Paris Climate Talk series, featuring the need for new technology and R&D programs. Joining me from my alma mater, Georgetown University, is Dan Byman. He's the Director of Research and a Senior Fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings and also a professor at Georgetown University's Security Studies Program. Thanks for joining me today, Dan. Thanks for having me. Were the attackers in Paris
1: what are called foreign fighters? They seem to have been a mix. Uh, We're still getting a lot of um, initial and somewhat conflicting reporting, but some of them seem to have uh, been Europeans who volunteered and spent time fighting with the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq.
0: So one of the uh, fears that people have expressed is that ISIS operatives are infiltrating into Europe or or even into the United States disguised as refugees. Is that a concern we should take seriously?
1: Again, the reports are still conflicting, but it does appear that at least one of the attackers was someone who uh, came in perhaps as a refugee along the refugee route. And that's certainly, uh, I would say, a legitimate concern. But in my view, it's somewhat overstated. Uh, You have, of course, several um, hundred thousand refugees uh, going to Europe and millions of refugees overall. And so it's not surprising that among these huge numbers, there may be um, some violent individuals. The real danger to me is not taking care of the refugee problem. Uh, If these refugees are trapped in the Middle East, if they're in these huge camps where there are no opportunities, if they're not integrated into host societies Over time, we're going to see the development of a terrorism and radicalization problem among large numbers of refugees. There'll be logical recruits for violent organizations, and there's tremendous potential that these refugees will be a huge and lasting security problem. We've seen this to some degree with the Palestinian refugee problem, where it begins after the Israeli-Palestinian Civil War and then War of Independence in 47-48, and the refugees are brought into neighboring states but not integrated, and over time, they become the nucleus of a range of very violent groups and pose a huge host of uh, problems to not only to Israel but also to the countries that are hosting them.
0: Do you think ISIS is capable of striking the United States?
1: When we think about the Islamic State and its attacks on the United States, it's useful to break it down into several levels. Uh, One thing they've tried to do is simply inspire lone wolves and issue propaganda, excite people, and get someone who's reading online or, in general, hasn't had any real contact with the Islamic State to pick up a gun and kill people in the organization's name. And and that's quite possible. We've seen um, the organization almost succeed a number of times along those lines. Uh, The bigger question is, could they do something more like Paris, or what seems to be the case in Paris, where it's a coordinated, orchestrated attack with multiple people, more sophisticated? Um, This is certainly possible, but it's harder than it would be in Europe. Uh, In the United States, the um, American Muslim community is much better integrated, cooperates regularly with law enforcement, in general has not been prone to radicalization uh, remotely on the scale that we've seen in Europe. Um, It's simply much harder to get from Syria and Iraq uh, to the United States than it is to Europe. There's no land border, to say the obvious but important point. But also... The security services of the United States are large and capable, and they're tracking relatively few individuals, as opposed to the European services, many of which are overstretched. It's um, not a coincidence that we're seeing problems in Belgium, which has huge numbers of people who have um, gone to fight with the Islamic State in Syria and very small security services. So the United States can do things with resources that many of its European partners cannot.
0: You wrote on the uh, Brookings Marcaz blog very recently, right after the Paris attacks, that ISIS might regret the decision to go global, uh, referring to the Paris attacks, the Russian airliner down in the Sinai attacking in Lebanon. Why might they they regret the decision to go global?
1: When you go global, you basically take on all enemies, and it's very hard to achieve any local objectives. Uh, The more successful groups, uh, let's say Hamas, for example, um, always carefully define their enemies, and were able to be prudent in their target choice outside their enemies. So Hamas didn't attack in Europe, it didn't attack the United States, and as a result was able to forge, um, to limit its enemies, but also to Um, have a sense of responsibility towards the Palestinian people, that gave it a lot of popularity. Um, By going global, you risk retaliation from tons of sources, and also watering down what you're trying to do. You're trying to achieve 50 things at once, and when that happens in any organization, you often achieve zero.
0: Do you think uh, the the United States or its NATO allies or other Europeans are going to have to put combat troops on the ground in in Syria or Iraq to, to fight the Islamic State?
1: Uh, This depends on what we want to accomplish. Uh, Right now, there are limits to what air power can do. Air power can help contain the Islamic State. It can target its leaders. It can inflict a lot of punishment. But the basic point of retaking territory has to be done on the ground. And To be clear, the Islamic State actually has suffered significant losses on the ground in recent months, Uh, and some of these have been done by Syrian Kurdish forces, by Iraqi Kurdish forces, but in general, the United States has lacked local allies who are competent, who have broad appeal, and who can work with on a sustained basis, and this has been the biggest problem the United States has faced, which is it doesn't want to send in its own ground forces, but the local partners it has are insufficient.
0: Well, Dan, I'm going to... I'm going to thank you for your time, and thanks for calling in. My pleasure. To continue our discussion of the Paris terrorist attacks, I'm going to play some short excerpts from a panel discussion held recently at Brookings on the policy options in war-torn Syria. While the event focused on new strategies to address the Syrian civil war, the expert panelists did address the ISIS threat and the group's strategy. To start, Will McCants, director of the Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World, gave this background on the militant group.
2: This is an organization that has thought deeply about the utility of violence and how to use it to pursue political objectives. Uh, Its favorite strategy manual is a book called The Management of Savagery. It came out in 2004 and the book outlines a plan very similar to the plan that Mike began with, an ink spots plan for taking territory and eventually establishing a state Uh, The author went by the nom de guerre, Abu Bakr, Naji, and he talks a great deal about the value of brutalizing one's enemies and using brutal governance techniques uh, in order to scare the population, polarize them, and (laughs) subdue them to cement your rule. It's a strategy which the Islamic State has pursued to great effect, uh, but it has pursued it to great effect because of the politics on the ground. They tried the same thing they are doing today back when they were founded in 2006. They tried to take territory, uh, small towns, uh, they tried to govern, but they didn't succeed. And the narrative that was spun out of their failure was that they are simply terrible at governing, and this is why they collapsed. But we elided the fact that there was a gigantic, powerful military on the ground as well uh, that was conducting raids every night, that was giving arms to the Sunni Arab tribes that had grown angry at the Islamic State. And that's what ultimately contributed
0: to the Islamic State's collapse. McCants, who authored a recent Brookings essay on the rise of Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Goes on to explain how the civil war in Syria and drawdown of U.S. troops provided the Islamic State another opening.
2: Since its founding in 2006, then, the Islamic State has been focused on, as its name would indicate, state building in Syria and Iraq and across the Middle East. Heretofore, it has not really had a foreign ops uh, interest. It has not had an interest in carrying out large scale attacks uh, against powerful. Uh, international actors like the United States and Russia. If it carried out foreign operations, it was closer to home, Uh, carrying out attacks in Turkey uh, to divide it from the Kurds, carrying out um, attacks in Saudi Arabia against the Shia again to polarize uh, the government and its Shia population, but it was not dedicating a lot of resources to carrying out major attacks abroad. Something has changed in the last two weeks. It has all of a sudden decided to devote resources to carrying out attacks on its primary enemies. Um, Some of these attacks make sense uh, from the outside, some of them don't. It makes sense that they would carry out an attack on one of the major uh, members of the alliance Uh, that is bombing them uh, in Iraq and carrying out a few attacks in Syria, namely France. Um, What's a little bit more puzzling and hard to square with all of this are the attacks on Iran and Russia, because they have had this tacit understanding before now of uh, you leave me alone and I will leave you alone. It seems with the attack on the Russian airliner, with the attack in Beirut, Um, uh, in a Hezbollah-controlled area, uh, that this understanding is gone. It might have to do, I think, with its loss of territory. For all of the problems with the current administration's strategy uh, in Syria and Iraq, the Islamic State has lost 25% of its territory and lost tens of thousands of fighters and according to one former member of the Islamic State who uh, has been talking to the press over the weekend, his thought was that the move to international ops has to do with this loss of territory and manpower, that the Islamic State has come to believe that it is more valuable to have these fighters abroad putting pressure on the alliance rather than inviting them to come to the Islamic State and build the state Um, uh, as they had been doing before.
0: But, McCants asks, is this a sustainable strategy? I think
2: one major liability for the Islamic State, and it's the same liability of every other jihadist group that has tried to set up a government, is that they have taken on all enemies at the same time. Uh, They are not incapable of prioritizing enemies, but often for global jihadists, Uh, the uh, circle of enemies grows so large that you eventually invite destruction. It's not because they are terrible at governing. It's not because they're too brutal. Uh, They are terrible and they are brutal. But these governments collapse ultimately because they galvanize the international community to act.
0: McCants is also the author of The ISIS Apocalypse, The History, Strategy, and Doomsday Vision of the Islamic State. Senior Fellow Tamara Wittes, who directs the Center on Middle East Policy here at Brookings, offered her perspective on the regional political dynamics as they relate to the Civil War and ISIS.
3: So if you look across these, um, these various conflicts, we have two big problems in the Middle East today. We have a problem of order, and we have a problem of authority. Uh, we have a problem of the basic breakdown of states, and we have a problem of who gets to decide. Um, The Obama administration's policy towards Syria hasn't truly engaged with any of these overlapping conflicts, and it doesn't present any answers to the problems of order and authority in the region today. It's focused on ISIS, ISIS, which is a symptom of these conflicts, a manifestation of this problem, not the disease itself.
0: Wittes went on to say that the Obama administration's Syria strategy doesn't address Syrian President Assad's war on his own people. To conclude, Wittes called for a regional solution to the civil war that will also address the ISIS problem.
3: So it's a regional conflict, as I've just tried to convey. It needs a regional solution. Uh, I think that means that whatever else we do, containment, diplomacy, ink spots, uh, we need to convene a regional security dialogue uh, that's not driven by outside actors, but that uh, is driven by the interests of those in the region and that reckons very (laughs) frankly with these questions of sectarian identity, uh, with the role of political Islam, and with forging from the ground up the necessary consensus for Syria's future that will really end this war and and squeeze ISIS, which is what the president said he wants to do.
0: Visit our website at brookings.edu to watch the full video, listen to the audio, and download the transcript of this event, in which Dan Byman, Michael Hanlon, and Ken Pollack also participated. And while you're on the site, I recommend you also watch Europe's Refugee Crisis, Hospitality and Its Discontents, a recent event hosted by our Center on the United States and Europe. Finally, visit Brookings.edu slash ParisAttack to get all the latest research and commentary from Brookings experts about the attack on Paris and the ISIS threat worldwide. And now, what's happening in Congress with special guest Molly Reynolds.
4: My name is Molly Reynolds. I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies program here at Brookings, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Congress this week. So the biggest thing that we're seeing in Congress this week are early signals of what the House of Representatives might look like under a Paul Ryan speakership. Two weeks ago, we saw the House take up a major highway bill uh, that had been stalled in Congress for much of the year. and. This was a real test of an early uh, promise made by uh, Paul Ryan to open up the uh, amendment process in the House to the rank-and-file, to give rank-and-file members of the House more opportunities to offer amendments to bills. Uh, We saw over 100 uh, amendments considered on the floor of the House. The House took basically three full days, went way into the night to consider amendments from Republicans and Democrats alike. This was certainly a down payment on Ryan's promise to open up the amendment process, but it'll be, uh, in the next couple of weeks, it'll be a real test of whether Ryan can keep this up. The House uh, had three days two weeks back to devote to just this one bill, but it doesn't always have that kind of time. And One of the other things on uh, the House's agenda before the end of the year is how to reach an agreement on how to push uh, spending out the door for the rest of the fiscal year. A few weeks back, we saw a major budget agreement on top-line spending numbers, but Congress still has to finalize the real nitty-gritty, the details of how much is going to be spent on various programs uh, between now and next October. And if we get to a point in December where we are close to the December 11th deadline for completing that process uh, and the House isn't quite done, it'll be a real, uh, a real test of whether Ryan can keep, up his, keep his promise to let rank-and-file members of the House offer lots of amendments. During this week, we uh, we also expect to see the House uh, have what Paul Ryan is calling some listening sessions on the remaining appropriations bills that weren't considered on the House floor earlier this year. Uh, and this is a this is a new tactic we haven't uh, we haven't really seen this before. Ryan has pledged to let rank and file members come and sit down with the various appropriations subcommittees and give their ideas about where this money should be spent. And so this is another way that Ryan is uh, testing out how to give rank-and-file members more input, and it'll be interesting to see how that goes. I'm Molly Reynolds, and that's what's happening in Congress.
0: Finally, part two of our climate series, technology and R&D programs at the Paris Climate Talks.
5: Hi, I'm Mark Muro, a senior fellow with the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings. A lot of people are asking how are things going as we head to Paris? And it seems like, in many respects, they're going well. The thing to say about that is maybe yes and no. I mean, on the positive side, more nations are coming to the table. That's great. Uh, most every nation is submitting a detailed pledge to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. China, the world's biggest emitter that has often been intransigent about these matters, is now focused on investing in renewable energy. Uh, and reducing carbon pollution and, and is making, sending uh, positive signals. India, for its part, has been investing in solar power development. It's likely to come to the conference in a cooperative mood. And then there's the US. Uh, President Obama is in full legacy mode on this topic and has been stressing the importance of climate change throughout his second term. Uh, like China, the U.S. has never made an emissions reduction or has already made an emissions a reduction commitment to reduce its emissions by 26 to 29 percent compared to 2005. So that's good. What's not so good is that the world, these nations, these pledges aren't nearly enough. Uh, we're failing at the expressed goal of holding the increase of global average temperature below two degrees Celsius uh, above pre industrial levels. Sure, there's a lot of positive messaging around, uh, go world, we're doing well, making it seem as if we're doing great, as if we we just need to pull together a little more and we'll be fine. But that's really not where we are. Uh, this is what Andy Revkin at Dot Earth calls a reality gap. If we just keep doing what we're doing with the commitments being made and the technologies we uh, have improving at the same rate they are now, we will fall far, far short of the two degree target. Even if every promise was carried out, CO2 emissions will continue to rise. So I think in that sense, we really have a problem. Uh, And and that's where we're going to need to uh, move ahead. So what should be done? Uh, What should be discussed at Paris? Well, one thing for sure that needs discussion and action and yet is not being discussed much is technology development. R&D with a vengeance. We need to change the game. We need to go after radical technology breakthroughs to change, change the curve. We should be piling on to renewables and the energy storage and grid transmissions technologies needed to deliver them. We should be piling on to next generation nuclear. And we should be working harder on carbon removal technologies that could suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. In that sense, we should be looking at ways to get to negative emissions if possible. In this regard, a few scientists have proposed ways to integrate commitments for boosting research, development, and demonstration on next-generation options into the treaty process, and that would be great. But in the meantime, technology development is likely going to be greatly underplayed in Paris. Is there a way to rectify this? Well, as I say, several uh, scientists have suggested ways to literally bring R&D and RD&D into the UN process. One group has actually suggested the UN convention create an international low emissions technology commitment to promote innovation that will enable uh, deep carbonization. This would become part of the UN negotiations and uh, and, and the push to binding coordinated pledges That's a bold uh, uh, concept. Uh, I don't know how much conversation it it, uh, will really engender. Another group has suggested more vaguely that at least the major nations like the U.S., China, and the EU should pledge a coordinated effort towards zero-carbon technology development, maybe create a companion set of pledges on technology research and innovation. Could it happen? Right now, I don't hear a lot of buzz about this, but hope springs eternal. And if something did happen, it would be a unified long-term commitment in addition to the climate push that could really change the game. So thank you.
0: You can listen to our recent episode with Timmons-Roberts on the big picture of the Paris Climate Talks and tune in to upcoming episodes to hear more from our experts on the issues that will be discussed at Paris. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Kolzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Artist Jessica Pavone, and online support team of Chris Anichi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahan, and our intern Karen Will You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes. Listen on Stitcher and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. We're off next week for Thanksgiving, and we'll be back on December 4th with a discussion about college rankings. Until then, I'm Fred
1: Dews.